You are listening to a White Ridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. This morning, it's uh, my privilege to introduce to you the speaker this morning. Uh, His name is Anthony Brown. He comes from Vancouver, and uh, in Vancouver, he actually, he wears three hats. One of them is he's pastor of Hillside Baptist Church, uh, which is in North Vancouver, and uh, he's... uh, uh, often has spoken this weekend of that church. It's obviously his heart is very tied to that family of believers. He's also a professor at Regent uh, Seminary, College and Seminary in Vancouver, where he teaches. And then thirdly, he is uh, mostly connected with us. He's with Forge Canada, which is an organization that our denomination has contracted to help us in looking at how as a a whole collection of churches, we can be more missional in our living, more community-oriented in reaching out with the kingdom of God. And so uh, in those three capacities, he, he spreads himself, and uh, we're privileged to have him here this weekend. Uh, Anthony's married to Helen, and uh, they have a, a 12-year-old son named Joshua. Uh, he lived in England for most of his life. He came to Canada 13 years ago, so you might detect a little bit of an accent, and uh, we are delighted to have him here with us. What I, what I uh, want to say personally is, uh, you know, the, the uh, hosting the association meetings and then uh, having the speaker of the weekend preach on the Sunday morning can be a bit of a crapshoot. You know, you don't, you don't know who this guy is and where he's from, you know. It's, uh, you know, you kind of just get him and, uh, you know... <laughs> And so uh, I can say that the executive of the association made a great choice. And uh, what I have come to like and love about Anthony in this past couple of days of getting to know him is, you know, you can tell a lot about someone by what they, what they love and how they hold or handle things. Um, you know, I, I think about some of the things in my family that we hold and handle with care because they've been passed down like family heirlooms and things like that. Uh, journals from grandpa or or from father and so on these things are precious we we hold and handle them with care and uh, we can know from our brother Anthony that he holds and handles uh, the Word of God and so we can tell a lot about what he thinks of Scripture by the way he handles Scripture and this weekend we have been fed in the Scriptures and I want to invite Anthony to come and and be the servant of the Lord to feed us once again And as he comes, I'm going to just pray for him that he would be used by God. Let me pray for you. Thanks. So, Father, again, we uh, thank you for Anthony. And, Lord, even as we have prayed this morning earlier, uh, we ask you again to open his mouth to speak your word and open our minds and our hearts and the very center of us so that we might respond and be transformed. And so we commit this hour to you in Jesus' name. Amen. When Terry says we commit this hour, you don't need to worry. (laughs) I have a plane to catch, so we haven't got an hour. (laughs) It's been a a pleasure to be here. People keep asking me, as they they would, have you been to Winnipeg before? And I've been to Winnipeg, I think this is about the eighth time that I've been here. But it's a very memorable place for me because the first time that I came here, the, um, the newspaper, I think it was the Globe and Mail, had a picture of the world on it. 
and it had a, an arrow to the North Pole, an arrow to the South Pole, and an arrow to Winnipeg, because Winnipeg was the coldest place on the planet the day that I, uh, first day I came, was minus 34, so, so I took that home because I thought my son would enjoy that a lot, so. Um, as Terry said, we've been, uh, over the last uh, couple of days, thinking a lot about the church, thinking in particular about the church reaching out to the neighborhood, reaching out to our neighbors, uh, loving our neighbors. Uh, and in particular, we've talked about joining God in what he's already doing in our neighborhood and in the lives of our neighbors. And the question that I'm most often asked about this is, how do we recognize where God is at work in people's lives? Uh, so that's what I'd like us to think about together for a few minutes this morning. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, and let me invite you to stand as we read uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, from verse 25 on. Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Thus far, the word of the Lord. Have a seat. I have a picture to show you. I think it'll pop up behind me. There we go. This is uh, La Bella Principessa. It's a profile portrait of a, a young lady of nobility from the 15th century. It was sold by Christie's Auction House uh, in New York in 1998. Uh, they described it in the auction catalog as an anonymous 19th century German work. It made just a little over $21,000 when it was sold to a, a dealer in Old Masters. He sold it on for the same price to an art collector in Paris called Peter Silverman. Uh, Peter showed it to an art expert 
who thought it might be something much more exciting and suggested that Peter contact Martin Kemp. Martin Kemp was the emeritus professor in the history of art uh, from Oxford University. Now, Professor Kemp gets inquiries about the potential rediscovery of old master paintings all the time. But this one, uh, which he got as a, an email, a, a digital file in an email, this one was really intriguing to him because of the extraordinary skill of the artist that was evident. And also because the background demonstrates that the artist was left-handed, which narrows down the possibilities as to who this was by. He also observed that there were stitch holes on the left-hand side of the picture, which meant that this had originally come from a book. But most interesting of all was the girl. Her hairstyle is a very specific fashion used in the Sforza court in Italy in the 1490s. And Professor Kemp's real breakthrough came when an American scholar, a Professor Edward Wright, told him that there was a book from the same period called the Swartziad. Uh, that was a book that celebrated the achievements of the Swartza family, which had been commissioned to celebrate the wedding of Bianca to Ludovico Swartza, who was the patron of a very famous artist indeed. So Professor Kemp traveled to the National Museum in Warsaw where this book was currently housed, and he discovered that the size of the picture matched the pages of the book, the vellum on which it's painted matched the vellum of the book, and the stitch holes marked, um, uh, lined up exactly. And also that the book was clearly missing a page. So this picture is indeed of Bianca Sforza, painted for her marriage in 1496 by Leonardo da Vinci, making it worth well in excess of $10 million. Now, you didn't come for a lecture in art history, so you're wondering what on earth is going on by this point. Um, what has this got to do with anything? Well, I wanted to give you a, a memorable example of something that we get totally wrong. And that's our view of how we know where God is at work in the world. I think it's just like the story of the rediscovery of an old master. Like these great paintings, we think of God's acts as majestic things from the past. We think of God's acts in terms of the Old Testament accounts of the plagues of Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, the miraculous provision of manna to feed all the Israelites in the wilderness, and so on and so forth. Mighty deeds done long ago the like of which no longer happened today, just like these paintings, great art that was done long ago, the like of which is no longer done today. And if God is still at work today, it's desperately difficult for us to identify. So what we need is an expert who can carefully examine the evidence and after an exhaustive process tell us, at least in their opinion, if something is really an authentic work of God. Recognizing where God is at work in our neighborhood, in the lives of our neighbors, for example, is very difficult. Except that it's not. We're completely wrong when we think that way. We do not need an expert, a pastor, or a professor to do it for us. 
God's acts are not mighty and distant from us. The mighty acts that we read of in the Old Testament are indicators of the kinds of things that the Lord is doing all around us every day. When my son Joshua was a, a toddler, we used to take him to Rifle Bird Sanctuary. Uh, the main reason that we took him there was because there were no cars, so he could just rush around the paths. He used to love to run and run and run, and so he could run along the paths and chase the ducks and be safe. And he began to get really interested in the birds, and uh, by the time he was age three, he, he wanted to go for the sake of the birds. By the time he was six years old, uh, his grandfather, my father, bought him a bird book, and he started to record all of his bird sightings and try to see ones that he hadn't seen before and such like. Uh, now that he's 12 years old, uh, when we're out, he can see a dot in the distance in the sky, and he can tell you exactly what it is. He can tell you what its range is in North America, whether it's uh, seasonal, whether it's passing through. He can tell you about its habits. He can tell you the colors of its uh, feathers in the mating season. Now that, I think, is what recognizing where the Lord is at work is really like. Anyone who is paying attention can see that a bird is a bird. You don't need to be an expert. A toddler can do it. But the more you practice it, the better you get at it. The more you train yourself to look out for God at work in people's lives around you, the more you'll see it. And the more you'll come to understand it more and more deeply so that you're able to cooperate with the Holy Spirit more and more capably. Now, many of us, of course, have limited God's activity among people uh, to the church. And in fact, we, we even make it uh, stricter than that, more limited. Evangelism, worship, pastoral care, prayer, missionary work, that's where God is at work, in professional Christian ministry. So identifying and cooperating with God's work means becoming a professional Christian, a pastor or a missionary. And that involves us receiving a special call from God. But of course, all of that is nonsense. We're all called equally to follow Jesus. We're all called to make disciples. We're all called to love our neighbors. We're all called to participate in what God is doing in the world. And that leads us to the passage from chapter 10 of the Gospel of Luke, which we read earlier, and to Jesus' conversation with this lawyer. And the conversation begins with the lawyer asking Jesus a question to test him. Now, he's not trying to catch Jesus out. Sometimes that happens. Sometimes the Pharisees or the scribes are intentionally asking Jesus a question to, to trick him and to try and catch him out. But what this lawyer wants is simply to know if Jesus is orthodox. Does he believe the right things? In other words, does he believe what I believe? Now, Jesus immediately switches the question round on him and asks this lawyer, this expert in the law, to say what he believes. What is written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus says. And the lawyer answers very well. He gives exactly the same summary of the law and the prophets that Jesus himself gives on other occasions. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. 
and love your neighbor as yourself. This last part, love your neighbor as yourself, comes from Leviticus chapter 19. And it's a summary of about 40 laws from across the Old Testament that deal explicitly with neighborhood relationships. Five of the Ten Commandments deal with relationships between neighbors. And of course, those laws were needed when they were written because something dramatic was happening in the life of the nation. Remember, they'd been a, a wandering people for uh, 40 years out in the wilderness, a nomadic people. Now they were moving into the land and they were uh, going to become uh, settled. So they were going to have literal neighbors. And so they needed law, they needed God's instruction to know how to relate to these uh, neighbors. The words, you shall love, were a call to relationships of responsibility. They're not really to do with intimacy or to do with affection, but to do with responsibility. It's been argued, in fact, that the, the clearest English translation would actually be, you shall be of use to your neighbor, or you should be beneficial or helpful to your neighbor. Of the 40 laws that uh, relate to this whole subject, uh, quite a few of them begin, you shall not. In other words, they're calls to uh, not to violate your neighbor's rights, calls to just relationships. So these include things like not bearing false witness, not coveting, not physically harming your neighbors, not deceiving them or defrauding or slandering or disgracing or dealing dishonestly or damaging your neighbor's property. Other laws are positive. They're calling neighbors to pursue community together actively. So they call for honesty, for compassion, for forgiveness, both forgiveness of, of wrongs and also forgiveness of debts. They call for generosity, for vigilance on behalf of neighbors, and for readiness to help your neighbor. These laws are all about creating communities in which there is safety and dignity, respect and compassion. There are also quite a few verses that promise God's judgment on those uh, who abuse their neighbors. In the New Testament, the command to love your neighbor is restated nine times. Six times in the Gospels, three times in the Epistles, five times by Jesus himself. And on three of those occasions, Jesus couples uh, this call to love our neighbor as ourselves with Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6, verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus says, there is no greater commandment than these. And it's a, a phrase that doesn't work. It's grammatically incorrect. There is no greater commandment, singular, than these, plural. What he's saying is that these two commands, to love God and to love neighbor, are absolutely inseparable from one another. And in Matthew 22, Jesus says, upon these things hangs all the law and the prophets. In other words, summarizes all that God had to teach in the Old Testament. How you treat your neighbor is the key evidence of your love for God. Love of neighbor, being of benefit to your neighbor, is inseparable from loving the Lord. 
But something had gone wrong with this Old Testament teaching on neighborliness. Love for one's Jewish neighbor and then for the foreigner living in Israel uh, and love that was supposed to be a light to the nations had become an exclusive love for one's fellow Jew only. And in fact, in many cases, love for one's fellow Jew was, was reduced, it was limited to love for one's fellow Jew as long as they adhered to your version of Judaism. Hence the lawyer's question to Jesus. Does he share my view of the faith? This is the exclusivism that Jesus denounces in the parable of the Good Samaritan. When the lawyer asks, who is my neighbor, what he's really asking is for limits to the extent that he has to be beneficial to other people. See, a good definition of neighbor says as much about who you don't have to care for as it does about who you do. And for a first century Jewish lawyer, this is all about racial and religious purity. It's not so much about geography, who do you live next to. Jesus' story, of course, turns this entirely on its head. There's a traveler. He's on his way from Jerusalem to Jericho when he's set upon by robbers who beat him and leave him half dead. Lying, dying by the roadside, three people come by. Two, the priest and the Levite, are devout Jews. They do exactly the correct thing according to the practice of first century Judaism. They avoid contact with blood, and they avoid contact with what may soon be a dead body. These are the people who the lawyer talking to Jesus would identify with. So he does very well to recognize that what they've done in passing by is not right. The third person to come by is a Samaritan. Now remember, the lawyer is looking for a definition of neighbor. He's looking for a boundary between who's in and who's out. And he defines in and out in racial and religious terms. Because although he knows his scriptures well, remember, he quoted them accurately earlier, and he's commended by Jesus for understanding the Old Testament so well. Although he knows his Bible well, he's misinterpreted these laws of neighborliness, which tell him who God cares about and where the Lord is inviting him to recognize and join in what he's doing in the world. So Jesus presents the lawyer with a Samaritan, one who is totally unacceptable to a devout Jew, both racially and religiously. Samaritans who lived in Palestine lived with the good Jews of Galilee to the north and the good Jews of Judah to the south. And they are the definition of all that was impure as far as the religious leaders of Jesus' day were concerned. It's those who are, in a sense, closest to us, but somehow have something that's different about them that we disagree with them on profoundly. It's those people that we, we hate the most. Not those who are very far away from us. It's the ones who are just close, but they just don't get it that annoy us the most. And yet this Samaritan helps out the injured traveler. And Jesus ends the story by asking the lawyer, which of these three do you think was a neighbor? 
And to his credit, this lawyer puts aside his racial and religious prejudices, and he rightly replies that the neighbor was the one who showed mercy. Picking up on all of that Old Testament law that's summed up in the command to love your neighbor, Jesus' story says not only that you shouldn't do harm to your neighbor, like the robbers do, but also that it is wrong to do nothing for your neighbor. To do God's will is to act when you see your neighbor in need of help. You can be confident that you are cooperating with God when you act in mercy towards your neighbor. But that's not all. Did you notice Jesus gives the story a particular context? This doesn't begin, once upon a time there was a traveler who was attacked by robbers. Jesus begins the story, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jesus is specific about the place that these events happened. In the midst of this conversation where he's doing his usual thing, he's eliminating ethnic and religious and social barriers, he hangs on to this one issue, the issue of place. The story has a real location. In the midst of changing the definition of neighbor, love for that neighbor still has to be practiced somewhere. It's not a disconnected love. If Jesus is saying in this parable, love everyone, then what he's really saying is love no one very much. But what Jesus is actually saying is love those you meet on your way. Neighbors are not everyone. They are those who we encounter in the course of our daily lives. And those we have the most opportunity to be of benefit to or to show mercy to when they're in need are those who we are in regular geographic proximity to. In other words, our literal neighbors. But that's not all. There is one last element in this story that we really mustn't miss. The question Jesus was asked to answer was, who is my neighbor? The lawyer wants to know who qualifies for my help. And Jesus' reply is not so much about who as it is about what it means to be a neighbor. The neighbor is the one who shows mercy. Being a neighbor is something you do. It's an activity. In the case of the Samaritan, it's a costly activity. Neighborliness, neighboring, is an action. Okay, that's clear enough. But here's the thing. When you read the story, who do you picture yourself as? Most of us imagine that Jesus is calling us to be like the Good Samaritan, right? I think he is. But that makes the neighbor the traveler who was attacked on the road. And that's not what Jesus actually says. The neighbor is the one who shows mercy. The Samaritan is the neighbor. The lawyer, and by extension, as we read this story, you and I, we are the traveler in need of rescue. Jesus is saying that our neighbors are those who show mercy to us. 
what he's teaching is that being a neighbor is about real relationships. It, it's about receiving and not just about giving. Yes, we're supposed to be of benefit to our neighbors, but we're also, we're also need to let them be of benefit to us. We need to let them come to our rescue, not simply to think of ourselves as always being the rescuers. Okay, uh, for those of you who've, uh, whose attention has drifted, now is the moment to tune back in. I'm going to tell you how to recognize the bird. Uh, if you missed that bit, there's no hope for you. Uh, at, the, at the end of Jesus' story, the lawyer gets the answer right. The neighbor is the one who shows mercy. At the beginning of this encounter, Jesus and the lawyer have established that loving God and loving neighbor are inseparable. So here's the point. Whenever you see love of neighbor, the love of God is present. God is at work whenever you see neighbors being of benefit to one another. Whenever you see neighbors showing mercy to one another. Yes, you are called to follow the example of the Good Samaritan. At the end of the conversation, Jesus says, go and do likewise. And I'm sure that he means by that, that we should help when we see our neighbors in need. But when our neighbors see us in need and respond, there is just as much chance and perhaps even more that we can recognize and name God at work. When your neighbor shows mercy to you, when your neighbor is of benefit to you, it seems to me that may be the best moment to call a bird a bird. That may be the best moment to say to them, you've been the means through which God has blessed me today. And if that's asking too much, then perhaps at least we could say, I'm glad that you're my neighbor. Let's pray. Let's take just a moment in silence to think about our own neighbors, those who we meet in the course of our regular lives, those who we live nearby. Lord, we ask your blessing on these people. We ask that you would give us grace when they annoy us, drive us crazy, and treat us unjustly. We ask that you would give us forgiveness when we do the same to them. But most of all, Lord, we ask that we would see you at work in our neighbors and in our neighborhoods that we would be those who could join you in what you're doing there. That we would be those who would receive and give. That others might encounter just a taste of the kingdom of God through us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.